Mark chapter 14. We're going to jump right into our text, beginning with verse 12. We're told that on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, that Jesus' disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? So Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, the city being Jerusalem, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Now, as we do often with our travels through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to begin with our scene of activity. Mark establishes the context. He says that this is the first day of unleavened bread when they killed the Passover lamb. We know that we're in Jesus' final week, the week known as Passion. Chronologically, this indicator places us at the conclusion of Thursday and the start or the beginnings of Friday. It places us at dusk, at 6 p.m., Thursday evening. 6 p.m., the conclusion of Thursday, the beginnings of Friday. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, specifically the Passover Seder. The Seder was a meal. It was a dinner that was traditional. It was customary. It was instituted on that first night there in Egypt when the Lord liberated the people from bondage. It marked the beginning. The Seder marks the beginning of the feast, the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. It was commemorating, obviously, the Lord's miraculous saving of the firstborn sons of Israel from the angel of death sent as the final plague of Egypt. Any home, if you're familiar with Exodus, that had the blood spread upon the doorposts, of the home, the angel passed over. That's where we get the phrase, pass over. This is why, as Mark indicates, that this is the first night. Why? Well, he mentions it. He says, because this is when they killed the Passover lamb. As the Seder dinner is taking place there in Jerusalem is the slaughter of millions of innocent lambs. Now, in order to ensure that everything is ready, everything that is prepared, Mark tells us that Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead. Jesus, the entourage, they're making their way to Jerusalem. In order to ensure things are ready, he sends two of the disciples ahead, saying to them, go into the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. Now we know from another account that these two disciples are actually Peter and John. It seems as though this dynamic duo we find in the book of Acts is getting a little practice working together. Peter and John are told specifically to look for a man that's carrying a pitcher of water. And this would have been an odd occasion. This would have stood out within the first century culture because gathering water for the home was traditionally either a slave's job or the woman of the home. So it would have been unusual to see a man doing what was considered at the time women's work. And so we should ask, why would this man be carrying a pitcher of water? I think the answer is simple. This man, what's he doing? He's helping his wife out around the home. It's not his job. It's not his chore. It's not even his duty. He loves his wife. And so what does he do? He lays down himself. He dies to his own desires. He gets off the couch, pauses the game and he helps his wife around the house. And what's more interesting to me than that is that we see that Jesus, that Jesus took note, that Jesus knew this was happening, and he singles him out, placing him in this narrative, the story of his final week as an example. Men, it's a good thing to help your wife around the house. Such a good thing that Jesus takes note, and he encourages us to it. We'll get to that more in a B-side beside that most of the men will ignore and most of the women will enjoy. Verse 14, we're, we're told that when ever, continuing Jesus' instructions to the disciples, whenever this man goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished, it's prepped, it's ready, so make ready for us. 
So his disciples went out, came into the city, found it just as he had said to them. And so James and John, uh, Peter and John, they prepare the Passover. Look for this man. Why? Because he has a room ready, a room prepared. The upper room. Now, the upper room is interesting historically. Because it's the same room that we also believe was used to house the first century church. We also believe that this room, the same room that Jesus enjoys the Seder, was the room that the 120 were gathered in there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. This home historically is significant because it was the home of a woman named Mary. Now we're not provided this detail from scripture, but historically this Mary, a different Mary from Mary Magdalene, a different Mary from Mary of Bethany, is actually the mother, historically, of our author, a man named John Mark which makes the scene here all the more interesting. Young Mark is witnessing the events that will take place firsthand. And there's two things about this scene that I find interesting. First, the man already has a room set up ready for Jesus. As a matter of fact, the instructions are, go look for this dude, he's got everything prepared, follow him, says the master has need for the home, you'll go, it's all set up. Your job, Peter and John, is to go get the Seder food, get that stuff prepped, get that stuff ready. I'm on the way. Now, most scholars, when you, when you hear them expound upon this unique story, they see a miraculous element to how it all unfolds, that Jesus is, is somehow looking out almost like he teleports his vision. He sees this man. He's giving this instruction that there's like this real supernatural element to it. However, while that's the case, could be the case, I think there's maybe a more reasonable, more plausible explanation for why this unfolds the way that it does. If you operate this story or you view this story with the, the notion that Mary is already a disciple of Jesus, then I think it's entirely likely that she and Jesus, sometime during the week, had made arrangements that he would celebrate Passover, enjoy this dinner at her home. Now that leads us to a question. Well, why would Jesus keep these arrangements hidden from the disciples? Why would he keep the location of this Seder dinner a mystery? Only then telling Peter and John, two of the disciples, where they can find the location. Well, if you were with us last week, Judas has already hatched a plot to betray Jesus. What does he need? He needs a time and a location, a private location, where he can betray Jesus. So why would Jesus keep the disciples in the dark? Well, he doesn't want Judas to know where he's going. He doesn't want Judas to know that he's going to be in this upper room, a private area, enjoying the Seder with the disciples, away from the multitudes. So he keeps this hidden from the disciples. He sends ahead two of them to go ahead and make arrangements. Judas has no idea where they're going till when, till they arrive, but he's already with the guys, so he can't leave to pinpoint the location. You see, Jesus is wanting what takes place here this evening to be uninterrupted. He wants to ensure that it's without intrusion. Second thing that I find interesting about this scene is that Either way you look at it, Christ is both yielding himself to all things, but he's also clearly controlling all things through his sovereign power. Jesus will surrender himself to the events that will unfold this evening, but he sets the stage for them. He's in control, and then he's willingly relinquishing control. Verse 17, now in the evening... Jesus came with the twelve. They sat, they ate. And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful. And they said to one another, one by one, Is it I? Another said, Is it I? And Jesus said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, it would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Now back to our scene. Jesus, the disciples, they've caught up, Peter, John. 
They're enjoying the Seder. The Seder is taking place. It's a time of joy. It's a time of celebration. It's a traditional time. It's an enjoyable time. Jesus spending just with his closest friends. But at some point in the Seder meal, Jesus drops a conversational bomb. I mean, Jesus blows up the conversation. Like, it's now the point of no return when he tells them. And you can imagine the scene. He's enjoying the food. They're passing dishes around. They're laughing. They're kicking back. It's merriment. And then Jesus says, hey, fellas, I got something to say. One of you is going to betray me. It's like, boom, the whole scene implodes. Imagine how these words would have reverberated throughout the room. These guys had lived together, housed together, eaten together slept together. They had spent the last three years together. They were buddies. They were friends. They were compadres. The reality, one of them would be the betrayer. It's probably more for their little brains to handle. And I find that their reaction to this is interesting. And they began to be sorrowful. So following Jesus' bomb, they're bummed out. And then they begin to say, is it I? First, note that Jesus' words offended them. This phrase, began to be sorrow, sorrowful. It literally means to make one uneasy, to offend. The disciples react to Jesus' prophecy here, that one of them would be the betrayer. They react with offense. They're offended that Jesus would say this. Their initial reaction is one of awkwardness and uneasiness. What Jesus has just said does not settle well with them. He has upset their sensibilities. So note, Jesus, his word goes forth to the disciples. The initial reaction, ooh, I don't like that. I don't like what he just said. As a matter of fact, I'm I'm kind of offended. I feel awkward. This just, this just isn't right. This is, they, they were sorrowful. They were offended. How could you say something like that to one of us? We're the inner circle. We're the 12. So they reacted immediately with offense. They're offended by what Jesus has just said. And then note that none of them felt as though that what Jesus had said applied to them. Not only were they offended, but then they become defensive. This phrase, is it I? It can better be translated, it isn't I. It's not a question, it's a statement. First they're offended, then they get defensive. It's not me, Jesus, it's not me. Yeah, okay, what you're saying, you're saying, I get it. I'm kind of ticked off by it, but it doesn't apply to me. So they're offended and then they get defensive. They go around the room and each man, according to Mark, feels the inclination to go on the record, to make it clear to Jesus and to everyone else sitting there that what Jesus has just said didn't apply to them. I won't betray you. It's not me. Ironically, just a few hours later, every one of these men would betray Jesus. We think of Judas as simply being the betrayer. They all bailed. They all ran which tells me that their estimation of self was horribly flawed. You know, sometimes we have the same reaction to things that Jesus says to us. Have you ever been in a Bible study or ever been here on Sunday morning? And the Lord speaks to your heart and your immediate reaction is, I don't like that. That upsets my sensibilities. I kind of feel awkward that he just said that. And then from being offended, what do, you, what do you say? You then get defensive. When in reality, often I find personally, when I hear something come from the Lord that offends me and my initial reaction is to get defensive, oh, those are the exhortations I should pay the most attention to. Why? because we all have a flawed estimation of self. Jesus' word. Yes, it's to be sweet. 
to our ears, but it's also to be bitter. It's a two-edged sword that provides exhortation and encouragement, but sometimes a kick in the butt, a rebuke. The disciples, first thing, they were offended. The second thing, they became defensive. The third thing I observe is that Judas wasn't the obvious choice. I mean, if Judas was like we think he was, you know, red tail, horns coming out of his head, then it would have been real easy at this moment. Oh, one's gonna betray you. Yeah, it's the dude with the horns coming out of his head. It's, yeah, it's Judas. No, you see, Jesus makes this prediction. One of you is gonna betray me. And it's not like they all kind of, <laughs> we know who that is. It's Judas. And then even when Jesus, like in dramatic fashion, answers and he says, no, it's one of you. As a matter of fact, it's the one I'm dipping with right now. And Judas is like, like even at that point, when Jesus is making it as clear as humanly possible that Judas is betraying them, it's not like they're like, okay, yeah, Judas, gang up on him, time to take him down. No, they couldn't believe that Judas would betray Jesus. And why? Because Judas was a leader. Judas was in the inner, inner circle. He was the treasurer. He was trusted with the money. Clearly, Judas couldn't. They had spent three years with the man, which illustrates the false facade that Judas had created. Judas is the ultimate hypocrite. Now, please understand this, this concept of Jesus saying, the one who's dipping, so they got bread, they're dipping in the same dish. They're eating the same bread. They're tearing it off. This is a communal kind of exercise. This is ultimate community. To Mark's original audience, they're the first century. This picture that he's painting of Jesus sharing bread, sharing a dish with Judas, it would have, it would have not played out very well to his original audience. The original reader of Mark's gospel would have been very upset. They would not have reacted well to the scene. For in that culture, to eat with another person, it was a personal exercise. This bread, partaking it, it becomes part of me. And if we're eating of the same bread, what is becoming part of me is becoming part of you, which means that we're becoming one. In the East, meals, food time, you didn't break bread with just anyone. You had to connect and identify with that person in a very real way. And so from the reader's perspective, you're thinking, Judas, how dare you? How dare you share bread with Jesus knowing you're gonna betray him? You're going to sell him out. You already have a plot. That's the ultimate insult. But then I think that there's another reaction from the original audience because, okay, I, I'm, I'm, I don't like what Judas is doing, but then I think, wait a second, Jesus knows what Judas is doing. And yet what does he do? He still eats with him. He still breaks bread with him. He still dips in the same dish with him, which means that Jesus, even now, in the 23rd hour, is still willing to identify with Judas, who we think to be the ultimate sinner, Jesus was still willing to connect, to identify with the chief of sinners. And then he continues by saying something that, that is radical and in some ways controversial. As he's dipping with Judas, as they're making this, this moment together, Jesus says, the son of man indeed goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man to whom the son of man is betrayed. It would not, it would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Now, first, Jesus is affirming two important realities. One, regardless of the human involvement here, Jesus was going to die on the cross that day. Why? As it is written of him. This was going to happen. Whether Judas fulfilled his deed or not, there were bigger, larger, more radical forces at play. Jesus on Passover would die for the sins of the world. 
but Jesus is also, I believe, providing Judas an opportunity to not be a part of the, of the deal, that he's giving Judas a chance to repent. Can you imagine? And I see the scene. As the disciples are chit-chatting with one another, saying, it's not me, it's not me, I can't believe Jesus would say this, how dare he? As they're distracted, Jesus turns, and he's got this bowl, and he's dipping bread, and he's eating with Judas, and he's saying this, where everyone can hear, but I see that Jesus' eyes are locked right onto Judas's, and that this is personal, that he's letting Judas know, I know what you're doing, I know what you're up to, I love you and I care about you. I'm still willing to identify in us to be one, but you shouldn't do it. Judas, turn. Judas, repent. Now we know that Judas doesn't. And Jesus makes another statement, a statement that we would initially shrill back from. He says, it would have been good, Judas, if you had never been born. That's heavy. That's heavy. As a matter of fact, that really kind of upsets our sensibilities. But I want you to consider this reality. What is true of Judas is true of every single human being who is born, who lives a life rejecting Jesus, and dies to spend eternity in judgment. That God's heart is not for anyone to go to hell. Jesus' heart is not for any to perish, but that all might have eternal life. And yet, Judas rejects Jesus' rebuke, his exhortation, his encouragement. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it, same cup. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Now, this is a heavy, holy scene. And we're going to examine this particular scene, I think, from an angle that many people don't, and thus lends itself to a lot of confusion. Jesus is in the middle Get back to our scene. He's in the middle of the Seder. They're celebrating Passover. And if you're not familiar with the Seder, the word Seder, it's the Hebrew word for order or for program. This dinner, it consisted of 15 separate parts. Now, we're not going to get into all of them. We're going to leave that to a B-side, except for to note that every single aspect of the Seder, down to each movement, down to when each thing was served, down to the elements that were on the plate, every part of the Seder had symbolism, had deep meaning. They all collated to something else. They were all types, pictures. Now, during the Seder, there were four cups of wine that were drunk to remember four different promises that God gave to Moses in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. You can read it on your own, but I'll run through them quickly. The first cup, so as one of the phases in this this progression, this order, the Seder dinner, the first cup was the cup of sanctification. God told Israel, told Moses, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The second cup, was the cup of deliverance. So the first cup would go around, and then they would continue through the meal. Then there was a point where there was this second cup. They would read from the scriptures. The second cup, the cup of deliverance, where God told Moses that I will rescue you from their bondage. And then the third cup would be passed later into the meal, the cup of redemption, where God told Moses, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And then the fourth cup, the final cup, was the cup of restoration. I will take you as my own people. Sanctification, deliverance, redemption, restoration. That's important. Now, because of the exchange with Judas, so as we're progressing, what Jesus is doing here in instituting what we know as communion, it was at a particular point in the Seder. 
And so to unlock some of the meaning and some of the purpose behind what Jesus is actually doing in the moment, it's helpful to know where Jesus is at in the progression of this particular meal. Now, because of what Jesus has already done, dipping the bread with Judas, we know we have a very solid inclination and idea where he's at in the meal itself. The fifth step, the yahats, was known as the breaking of the matzah. The fifth step to this meal. There were three pieces of matzah bread. Matzah was unleavened, flat bread. Don't forget, this is the feast of unleavened bread. Three pieces of matzah are brought out. The middle piece, during the hayahats, the middle piece, which is known as the afikomen, it's removed. Three pieces, the middle piece is removed. This flat bread, it's broken. And then it's carefully wrapped in linen and white linen, and it's hidden for later in the meal. Everything progresses forward. You get to the eighth step, the mahatzi, or the eating of the matzah. This is the first time the bread's presented, the fifth step. The bread then is eaten on the eighth step at this point in the Seder before the main course as kind of an appetizer. The two remaining pieces of matzah bread that are still on the table. The middle piece has been removed. The two remaining pieces are passed around. They're dipped into the same dish. They're eaten, they're consumed. In this moment, during the eighth step, the mahatsi uh, matzah, the eating of the matzah, Judas, this exchange with Judas takes place. Judas leaves. He identifies him as the betrayer. So note, when Jesus now took bread, it's not the eighth step because bread's already been introduced to the Seder. When Jesus took bread, when he blessed it and when he broke it and when he gave it to them, at this point in the Seder, they finished the main course. They're at the end of the dinner itself. They are at the 12th stage or step, the zafunin or the eating of the afikomen. You see, when you get to this step after the main course, kind of for dessert, the hidden afikomen, this broken middle piece of matzah, it would be retrieved. The host would often send one of the children one of the, into the room to find the hidden piece of afikomen. It would be discovered. It would be brought back to the host, who would then explain the significance behind this middle piece of matzah, the afikomen. You see, according to the Jews, these three pieces of matzah bread, they represented Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. With the afikomen, this middle piece, clearly representing Isaac. The final piece, it is broken further, and it's passed out by the host. The afikomen is passed out by the host to all of the guests, reminding them of how Isaac willingly surrendered himself to be sacrificed in obedience to the will of Abraham, his father. Each guest at this point in the Seder would receive a small portion of the afikomen, about the size of an olive, a small wafer. The host, before everyone ate the afikomen, would declare, this is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. For 2,000 years, this is how the Seder took place. This is what was said by the host of the dinner in this moment. Every year since the disciples were children, this is how the 12th step took place. Imagine their reaction when Jesus, when he takes this middle piece of matzah, when he takes the broken afikomen, and he continues to tear it apart and he's passing it around, this piece of bread that has represented for centuries Isaac, and he says, not this is the bread of affliction, but he tells them, he says, take and eat this, the afikomen, the middle piece of bread, that is represented Isaac, this is my body. 
Now, this is powerful. It's powerful for two ways. First, the Afikoman, it symbolized Isaac. And Isaac prophetically foreshadowed, students of Scripture, whom? Jesus. Isaac presented a picture of the Christ. Both were born under miraculous circumstances. Both Isaac and Jesus were only begotten sons of their fathers. Both willingly submitted to the will of their father. Both were to be sacrificed on the same mountain, Mount Moriah. Both were predicted to be resurrected on the third day. Read the account in Genesis. Both Isaac and Jesus willingly took up their own means of execution. Isaac carried the wood up onto the mountain to be sacrificed. Jesus carried his own cross. Both demonstrated the principle of substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus paying for the sins of the world. Isaac was spared. Why? Because there was a ram caught in the thicket. Both, following that scene, disappeared for a time, awaiting what? The father to bring a bride. In the moment, the Afikoman that has represented Isaac, it's significant because it's now representing Jesus because Isaac was a picture of Jesus and there was deep meaning but secondly, the handling of the Afikoman, it pictured, and I'm sure the gears are already turning, the way that they dealt with this middle piece of matzah, it was a picture of Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection. In many ways, the way that the Afikomans handled throughout the whole progression of the Seder is a picture of the life of Jesus. First, the Afikoman was the middle piece. In Hebrew, the middle of something always represented the heart of that thing. And in Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, we find the ultimate manifestation of what? Of not just God, but of his heart. The Afikoman, it was removed from the other two pieces, correct? Jesus laid down his divine glory separated himself from his father and came to earth. He separated. Thus, when we see him baptized by John, the father is in heaven speaking. The Holy Spirit descends as a dove, but the triune nature of God is divided in Jesus alone. The Afikoman. Well, it was unleavened. It goes without saying that Jesus, leaven being a picture in scripture of sin, that he was pure and spotless. And what did they do to the Afikoman? What did man do to the Afikoman? The Afikoman's given to man, and man breaks this piece of matzah. The Afikoman was broken. We're told in Isaiah 53, verse 5, that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities, that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Matzah. The word itself literally means the bread of affliction. Let me read you how matzah bread was formed, how it was made, the process. Immediately after the flour is first mixed with water, the relatively dry batter is placed on a flat surface with a hinged bar that is used to pummel the dough. Imagine Afikoman being a picture of Jesus. So the dough is first pummeled, and then it is flattened using rollers made from solid pieces of wood or metal without crevices. Perforation of the dough then occurs before baking by rolling a small wheel with sharp teeth attached to a handle, enabling air bubbles to escape, preventing the dough from rising and swelling during the baking. Have you ever looked at a piece of matzah that we use for communion? Have you ever noticed that from the baking that there are stripes on that piece of bread? And that from the perforation to ensure that the dough doesn't rise, that there's no oxygen, as the afikoman is rolled, as sharp spikes are stuck into the dough itself, that Jesus also was pierced? What a picture for Jesus and the afikoman were striped and pierced. Then what took place? The Afikoman, after being broken, it was buried. It was hidden. John 19.40 tells us that they then took the body of Jesus. They bound it in strips of linen. 
exactly like the Athacolmen, with spices as was customary of the Jews when they buried. The Athacolmen, it didn't remain hidden for long, did it? No. It was found. It rose, and it was seen by all. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, was buried, then rose again the third day according to Scriptures, and was what? And was seen. The Afikoman was also consumed. John 6 verse 51 says, Jesus saying that I am the living bread, interesting choice of terms, which came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Now we'll address this in a few minutes. Following the eating of the Afikoman would come what was known as the Baharak. I might have said that correctly. I might not have. I've really worked hard this week on my Hebrew. But the third cup of wine, following the eating of the Afikoman, would work its way around the table, the third cup, which if you recall was the cup of redemption. According to the Mishnah, which was additional Jewish writings, the wine of this cup was symbolic of the shed blood of the lamb that was applied to the doorposts in Egypt, which caused the plague of death to do what? To pass over. Now imagine, once again, the reaction. Jesus has just taken the Afikoman, which represented all of these things for centuries, and he says, this is my body. And then the cup passes, and what does Jesus do? He raises the glass to toast, and he says, he took the cup, he gave thanks, he gave it to them. When they had drank from it, he said, yeah, this is not what you think it is. But it is instead my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. For 2,000 years, when the Jews had operated, they had operated, they had related to God under what was called the old covenant or the old agreement. It was an agreement with God that God had established when? He had established it, the principle of it, the first Passover. He later solidified it when he gave the law on Mount Sinai. Now, according to the law, as long as the people offered the blood of a spotless lamb as atonement and covering for sin on Passover, God would accept their offering and pass over their sin, sparing them from death and judgment. This was the old covenant. Now the problem, the problem with this agreement is though this covenant provided a temporary atoning for sin through a substitutionary sacrifice, the innocent lamb, it failed to offer anything of permanence. Why? Because it was an animal sacrifice, which failed to remedy man's sinful nature, demonstrated in his inability to be obedient to the law. It was a temporary covering, but I needed it every year. Why? Because I was a moron the rest of the year. It covered once, but then I went out, kept living in sin, so I needed another covering. The solution the solution is that man needed a substitutionary sacrifice of permanence that would free him from his sin nature, thereby making him righteous and justified before God. Something permanent. So I'm no longer sinful in regards to my position before God. I need it once. And then I live in righteousness. I'm justified. The remedy? The remedy is that a sinless man would need to die, would need to willingly die, for the sins of mankind. You see, true forgiveness of sin could only follow a righteous payment for sin. In this moment, when the disciples are sitting there, Jesus is telling them that this cup of redemption will no longer signify an old agreement sealed by the blood of a temporary sacrifice, the lamb. But this cup will now represent a new covenant that Jesus would institute by the shedding of his own blood, thereby providing a permanent, sinless, human substitute to cover the sins of the world. And please understand that this phrase, new covenant, it's not like Jesus pulled it out of thin air. Matter of fact, 
this new contract, this new agreement, this new way that mankind would be able to approach God is something that Jeremiah the prophet longed for and saw in the future coming. He says in chapter 31 that, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make what a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, and in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, signified by what? Passover, my covenant which they broke, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law in their hearts and write it on their heart, in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, they shall be my people, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more, but remember that true forgiveness of sins could only follow a righteous payment for sin. Jesus is saying here that every time that we as his followers come to take these elements, the bread and the cup, these two sections of the Passover, that we are to recognize and to remember the new covenant whereby Jesus afforded us forgiveness from sins through the righteous atonement of sin brought about by his permanent substitutionary sacrifice. When he would later that night, when the lambs are being slaughtered for Passover, for the old covenant, would allow his blood to be spilt for a new covenant, the work that he did on the cross. Now, at a minimum, all Christianity believes that in instituting communion, that Jesus gave significance and deep meaning to both the bread and the cup. However, complications and divisions have arisen over the muddled nature of the phrase that Jesus uses when he says concerning the bread, that this is his body, is my body. And the phrase he uses for the cup when he says, this is his blood. Now, the Roman Catholic Church teaches what's called transubstantiation. Trans literally means to change. And they believe, they teach, they hold his doctrine, even confirmed again in the Vatican II, that during the consecration of the Lord's Supper, communion, that the elements of the Eucharist, the bread and the wine are transformed literally into the actual body and blood of Jesus. They are no longer bread, no longer wine, but they retain only the appearance of being bread and wine. And if you come from the Catholic Church, you understand the holy nature behind their view of the elements. Martin Luther, who was a Catholic, who protested against the church on a numerous uh, list of issues. He broke from transubstantiation and introduced an idea known as consubstantiation. Con literally meaning with. Luther taught that the bread and the wine, they do not become the body and blood of Jesus, but coexist with the body of Christ so that the bread and the wine are both bread and wine and also the body of Jesus, that they're with. Now, John Calvin was like hogwash, disagree entirely. And he taught that the presence of Jesus in the bread and wine was real, but only in a spiritual sense that would be enabled through a person's faith. So you see the progression here. Swiss reformer Zwingli came along and was like, bad, not true. I totally disagree. You see, Zwingli argued that the bread and the wine were mere symbols that represented the body and the blood of Jesus. So they're actually the body. Okay, they're with the body. Okay, they're with the body just spiritually. And then Zwingli's like, they're symbols of the body and blood. Matter of fact, when Zwingli debated the issue with Martin Luther at Marburg, Zwingli made the case. He made an interesting argument. He said that Jesus also said, I am the vine and I am the door. But in these instances, we don't actually think Jesus is now a vine or the door. Obviously, he's speaking symbolically. 
Let me throw in a new guy. I've just referenced a bunch of old dudes. They've been dead for a long time. Let me give you a quote from a living guy. David Guzik, a guy that I admire, he said this about this passage. He said that according to scripture, we can understand that the bread and the cup are not mere symbols, but are powerful pictures to partake of and enter into as we see the Lord's table as the new Passover. I've got an email into him to find out what he means by mere symbols being different from powerful pictures. I'm interested. Now, there's a few things that we should keep in mind in regards to the whole discussion of the elements. First, and I'm going to run through these quickly. We'll recap them in a B-side. But in context, there's a Seder, right? And in the bread and the wine, they already what? They're, they're literal items. They're bread, matzah bread, and it's a cup with wine in it. And yet everyone's on the same page that they are what? That they're symbols. And so Jesus here, he's doing what from the context? He's redefining symbols. He's not speaking literally. Secondly, after instituting communion, you should note that Jesus still refers to the elements as being literally bread and wine. Look at verse 25. Assuredly, I say to you that I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He refers to it as the fruit of the, the vine. He doesn't refer to it as his blood in this instance. Thirdly, there's no indication, and this is a direct contradiction to what the Roman Catholics teach, transubstantiation in particular, but there's no indication that the disciples viewed the bread and the wine as literally being transformed elements. Thus, you will never find an instance where the disciples, as the Catholics do today, worship the elements themselves. Fourthly, Jesus instituted communion before his crucifixion. So in that moment, if, if it's his body and his blood, you have a problem there if he hasn't died yet. Fifth, consuming flesh and blood, what Jesus is promoting, if you take that view, it's outlawed in the Levitical law. Leviticus 17 verse 14 makes it clear that it's an abomination. Would be odd if Jesus contradicted that. Sixth, Jesus was sacrificed, according to Hebrews 10, once for sin. Thus, as the Catholics believe coming to the table for Christ to be crucified again is actually heresy. Finally, and there are more, but Christ's one-time sacrifice, according to Scripture, is sufficient to save us. We do not need to maintain our salvation by anything of ourselves, our efforts, or our participation in the Lord's Supper. In line with the doctrinal reasoning of Zwingli, and I think the healthy reminder of Guzik, that the elements are, are, are more than just mere symbols, because I think Protestantism has taken maybe things to an extreme. We always go to extremes. But in line with the doctrinal reasoning of Zwingli, the reminder of Guzik, we should see the act of taking the elements as being more than an intellectual exercise whereby we remember the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. The act of coming to the table, what we do during the second set of worship every Sunday morning should be a moment where you commune and become one with the resurrected Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said, never mind, like, put out of your mind for a moment the bread and the wine, unless you can use them as folks often use their spectacles. What do they use them for? To look at? No, to look through them. So use the bread and the wine as a pair of spectacles. Look through them and do not be satisfied until you can say, yes, yes, I see the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. I think in that moment, we are nearest to heaven. We are never near than when we are at the Lord's table. J.C. Ryle, he said, and I love this. 
He said, by receiving the elements, we publicly declare. And I want you to keep this in mind. Next Sunday, when you come to the table, by receiving these things publicly, we are declaring our sense of guilt, our need of a Savior, our trust in Jesus, our love to him, our desire to live upon him, our hope to live within him. Using it in this spirit, we shall find our repentance deepened, our faith increased, our hope brightened, our love enlarged, our besetting sins weakened, and our graces strengthened. Coming to the table should draw us nearer to Jesus. And I agree. And when they had sung a hymn, verse 26, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The final step, the final stage to the Seder was that they would close with the singing of songs. You can read them on your own. They're the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 116 through 118. Can you imagine hearing Jesus sing? I think that would be awesome. I think it would be glorious. Do you know that this is the only place in the Bible where we have recorded that Jesus sang. Think about it. There have been no instances where I've demonstrated singing to my followers. So I'm gonna choose a moment to make it clear that what just happened is worthy of exalting and glorifying and singing. It doesn't have to be good singing, but singing. He chose for it to be a moment with communion. Which, folks, is why we take communion the way that we do. This is why we have it available every Sunday for you and your time of worship. But it's why we have singing of songs with it. Why? Because Jesus had singing of songs with it. Matter of fact, he's held off until he can partake of this again when? When we go to meet him in the kingdom. When we meet him in heaven. What a glorious thing to commune with Jesus, to connect with Jesus, to spend time in Jesus, and then to worship Jesus. There's a lot more that could be said concerning communion. We're going to leave some of the additional thoughts to the B-sides. So I encourage you on Wednesday to take advantage of them. Father, with all that being said.